so a lot of you may know this, but some of you who are new to the church may not. Uh, I, I was a very zealous young Christian growing up uh, and was really into uh, Jesus at a young age. I just knew that he was Lord over all things. And so at five, six years old, man, I was just losing my mind over Jesus. And eventually that evolved um, only into what could be expressed through this cultural phenomenon called Christian t-shirts. Anybody ever have Christian t-shirts? Some of you still do and you're proud of them. Can I show you a few Christian t-shirts on the screen today? Can we do this? Fantastic. Let's just look at a a few things. Exhibit one. I implore you, friends, look at this shirt. All right? So, um, anybody know what this is? It's, it's It's a ketchup bottle, right? But it says, ketchup with Jesus. Oh, man. Like, what what were you thinking when you did this? Whoever, I'm not talking about you. Nobody in here in this room did it, I don't think. But, like, what's somebody thinking, like, this is going to go over really well? Somebody's going to love this. And the reality is, because it's out there, people bought it. All right. Here's another one. Da-da-da-da-da. I'm flooding it. How horrible is that shirt? It's a half McDonald's, right, Noah, and it's saying, I'm flooding it. Like one of the worst catastrophes that we could think of in history about annihilating a world and we're going like, and let's have some burgers and maybe catch up with Jesus along the way. Give you another one. All right, this is actually given to us from one of our own, Ben Hancock. His own mother gave this to him for Christmas. Can you believe this? His own mother. Oh my gosh. So if you can't really see well, that's a Starbucks emblem, but it says sacrificed for me, all right? So there you go, Starbucks. Another reason why you may not want Starbucks now. All right, and lastly, this is actually one that I owned. Everything about this just gets it wrong. This is Jesus doing a push-up with a cross on his back. (laughs) It's like he's going to work out and build some muscles over dying for the sins of the world, all right? Now, can we all agree to never wear these shirts? Can, Can we all agree to do this, please? Can we agree if you own one of these shirts just to not do it anymore, unless you do it ironically, right? And it'll only work if you wear it next week. If you wear it down the road, we're going to have problems. But here's the thing. For me, I wore it out of what I would look at now as a pure heart. I I wore this because I wanted the insides of me to come out on the outsides of me and for people to know that everything in my being was for Jesus. Like, maybe that's for you when you wore them as well unironically, before you hit like your mid-twenties, like maybe you really wore it with a real heart for God. For me, one of the lines that I use early on, like early on, I remember saying this to myself and out loud, God, no one's going to love you more than me. Like I am going to out-love others when it comes to loving you. I am going to go for it. And what a beautiful, wonderful thought for a 12-year-old to say to their God, But eventually, that thought simply became very much static in my life and noise, because eventually there was a dichotomy, a separation between the insides of me and the outsides. At one time, it was the insides and the outsides working together in harmony, but eventually there was this, like, gap, and I found myself just a machine on the outside doing things for God, but on the inside, my heart was so far. Can anybody relate to that this morning? Can you, do you find yourselves at times in life just with a gap between the inside of you and the outside of you. And if so, this beatitude this morning is for you. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So let's just dive in here, and we're going we're gonna to tackle this a couple by doing two things. One, we're going to look at what does it mean to be pure in heart? What's Jesus talking about? And then secondly, what does it mean then that they will see God? And I just want to say up front that this is, of all the Beatitudes, the most disputed and the most varied in opinion. You're not going to find a whole bunch of people landing on one spot, all right? And so that means that we have to do a lot of investigation this morning as a church. We're going to do a lot of legwork through Scripture, all right? So if you like Bible and break it down, you're going to love it. If you don't, just learn to love it, all right? So here we go. Let's jump in. Let's start with the pure in heart. He goes, bless the pure in heart. So let's just stop and look at that, and we're going to put a lot of things on the screen for you to try to track with. These two words, pure and heart. This first word, pure, in the Greek is katharos. It's where we get the word cathartic from. When you have a cathartic experience, when you go for a run, for example, and the endorphins release, and you feel very clear and clean on the inside, that it's actually scientifically proven that if you'll just go work out or go work in the yard or do something monotonous with your mind but effort with your body, that stuff on the inside of you can get cleared out. It's a very important thing. We have cathartic experiences when we have a really hard cry, right? When we're with someone and we can just let out all the stuff on the inside of us. The idea is not pure in the sense where I was dirty and sinful and now I'm clean. That's not it. That's a post-enlightenment view of how we try to break down heart and mind. That's not a Jewish view. This isn't about salvation. Remember this, the Beatitudes are not about salvation at the end of the day. They're not about how you get saved. They're about those who live this way in life just in their state of where they are. And so we find here that the pure are cathartic. It's pure. It's a, it's a cleansing out process. But then the word heart is cardia. It's cardiac. It's what we actually use for heart today, this inner being of you. Now, what's going to be important here that we we'll have to break down is the way we understand heart simply as an organ in a one, two-dimensional way is not how a Jewish person interacted and saw the heart. Because for a Jewish person, the heart simply wasn't the organ pumped blood. The heart was the center of your being, the seat of the human, where everything operated out of it. And so, therefore, it flowed to your head and to your hands. It's important to keep that in mind. So, Jesus up front is saying that blessed are those who are clear and clean on the inside, even emotionally. There's nothing entangling it at the core of their being. Now, let's just, let's kind of break this down more because Jesus isn't like whistling in the darkness. He's not just pulling something out of thin air. He actually is pulling from the Old Testament, a passage that a lot of Jewish people would look to. It's in Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5. You can turn, you can read on the screen. Just, just watch this process here. You can see how Jesus pulls from it. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Just stop there. Simply it's saying, who's going to get to God? Who's going to be able to see God at the end of the day? Who will ascend the hill? And here's what he has to say, the psalmist. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, this person, he will receive blessing from the Lord. Do you see the parallel? Blessing, beatitude, blessed. Do you want to see God? 
clean hands, pure heart. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus doesn't mention clean hands. He only mentions pure heart, which we'll get to. But I want you to see this, that the outside and inside are always working together. The outside and inside, hands, heart, always work together. There can't be a dichotomy there. The psalmist understood this. The ancient people within Jewish culture understood this. Now, the next two verses that were interesting after that, after clean hands and pure hearts, it says, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. And here's what the psalmist is saying. He does not split his soul. He is not given to emptiness, to vanity, to empty things. That he does not split his soul, all right? And I don't mean like Voldemort, all right? Like Horcrux kind of stuff. But I mean like he does not have a split inside a, a duplicity of sorts. That this person is not going towards empty things or idolatrous things in life. He keeps himself solid on the inside. Who does not swear deceitfully. He does not say one thing and do another. He doesn't promise this and then go do that. He doesn't make these kind of commitments and then go off and do this instead. So it's really important. The psalmist is seeing and is trying to tell us that those who have really clean hands at the end of the day and really pure hearts are those who are not duplicitous. Their insides and their outsides match. That to be clear is to be unpolluted at the center of your being, to have solidarity, to be non-duplicitous. That's what it means to have clean hands and a pure heart. Allison Davies, he's a scholar and writer, he said, purity of heart must involve integrity, a correspondence between outward action and inward thought, a lack of duplicity, singleness of intention, and the desire to please God, God above all else. More succinctly, purity of heart is to will one thing, God's will, with all of one's being and doing. This is what it means to be pure in heart. Now let's go back to Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those with clean hands and a pure heart, now, why does he just simply say, though, a pure heart, not clean hands? Here's why. Jesus knows if he gets the heart, he'll get the hands. If he gets the heart, he gets the hands. This was just understood in Jewish culture. If you go for the heart, the hands will follow. But if you simply just kind of rest with the hands, you may never get the heart. Now, keep that in mind. Because there's a difference there. It's a difference between living inside out or outside in. And eventually we're going to look at a passage here with the Pharisees where their whole lives were built around living outside in. And there's going to be a lot of trouble, a lot of problems Jesus has with that. Now, the heart itself, as we said, is the center of the human. This is how Jewish people understood heart. That it was the operating center and that everything flowed out of it to the head and to the hands. And there's a particular passage here in Jeremiah 17 that has been, honestly, I would say, very misunderstood for a long time. And I'm not saying that arrogantly because all of a sudden I came up with this truth and I know it. No, it's just something that when you get certain people who comment on verses from their own context of culture, they'll be limited. 
So if you try at the end of the day to look at the Bible through a Greek mindset, and that is with a head mindset alone and not an ancient context and mindset, you'll always end up trying to make it into something it's not. Because there's a famous verse in here, which we'll get to, that's trying to say by commentators from an enlightened view that at the end of the day, the heart is just wicked and deceitful and you can't trust it. But that's not what it's saying. So let's look at this passage in Jeremiah 17. We'll start at verse 5. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Now, this is the verse that's been misunderstood a lot of times. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Now, I just want to break this down because there's something happening here within the, this kind of, it was, a, um, it was a, an ancient way to try to get across a point in your writings. There was a cadence to it. It's called a chiasm. I just want to break it down a little bit for you and show this. First, in verses 5 through 6, the writer, Jeremiah, is setting something up and saying, here's one side, cursed is the man, the person, the woman who trusts in others, like other humans, simply. And then it says along with that, that the core of them, the core of their being is apart and departed from God. That when you put your trust in the hands of yourself or in the hands of other humans around you, you will vacate depending on God. That you will start trying to manage everything and have power yourself. And it says that these people are like a shrub in the desert. What that means is it ain't going to live. It may look like it's going to live, but it's going to get no roots into the ground because there's no water supply to it. So cursed is the person who puts their trust in their own strength or other strength around them. They simply just look for the outside of things to make things right. And then in verses 7 through 8, the writer goes on to say, blessed is the person, the man who trusts in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water whose roots grow deep. Notice something. There's no mention of heart here because it's simply assumed that if you'll actually trust the Lord instead of man, if you'll start from the inside and go out instead of outside in, you're going to get the heart. And then here it says that the heart is polluted and frail. Simply it's trying to say the heart is duplicitous and needs attention. That if you leave your heart alone, it can naturally start going astray. It doesn't mean it's evil, but it does mean it's dealing with a sickness and an impairment of being a human being in this world. And that you are incapable of dealing with the core of your being, your emotions, the center of who you are. Because your emotions will lead you into action. They always do. It always happens. If you are taken with rage around what's happening in the world around us, then you will lash out at those that you perceive as small-minded or limited in their understanding or racist. 
And if you deal with fear around those who aren't like you and they seem to be too extreme and you don't really deal with it on the inside, you'll get really anxious and try to control your surrounding and who is around you. And you'll live in echo chambers. Your feelings always prompt and send you out with your actions. It doesn't work the other way around. So if you don't deal with what's on the inside, you're going to start doing things on the outside you'll never want to do. And if you only try to deal with the things on the outside without truly doing the things on the inside, at the end of the day, you're really not going to see change. And so we kind of broke it down here in what's called a chiasm, because this person, well, his heart has turned from God. So this is just a, like a little way that like for those who are really into Hebrew and they like kind of studying, you'll love this. It'll make sense. For most of you, you don't care, I know. But let me show it to you. See, again, there's a rhythm to it. Cursed is a man, he's like a shrub. The heart is polluted and frail. So here's the big question. Who can discern and handle your heart? If your heart is frail and sick and needs help, who can discern it and handle it? You can't. And then it says, the Lord knows the core of your being. The Lord knows your feelings. So it's going to take the Lord being involved with the core of your being if you actually want to get to what is next, to be like a tree and to find blessing. This right here is the way Jewish people approach Scripture. And this passage that we just looked at is a primary way, a primary way that they looked at their heart leading to hands, leading to action. In your bulletins, you'll see there's a, a longer quote there. I'm just going to read it to you. Contrary to an enlightenment or Greek split between outward action and inner heart, the biblical understanding is holistic. There is one whole self in relation to God, the Lord of all. The heart is the relational organ. When God speaks to me, I receive it in my heart, and it beats faster. When I act angrily towards someone, I do it in my heart. The real split is not between inner and outer, but between God serving and idol serving. It is between giving aid to the poor in order to be noticed and respected by others and giving as service to God. It's between praying and fasting in order to be seen by others and praying and fasting as faithfulness towards God. The beatitude means, in a nutshell, blessed are those who give their whole self over to God, who's the only one worthy of the heart's full devotion. That if you want to give your heart's full devotion to God, you got to first start then with the heart and let God deal with it. The humanity of you, the feelings of you, the core of you. Blessed are those who are clear at the core of their being, for they will see God. There's a, a really tra a sad and tragic story that was passed around years ago that even hit home to this congregation, I know, of a pastor in Hawaii who had committed an affair and was removed from their church. And another well-known pastor named Wayne Coldero sat down with this pastor afterwards and asked him, what happened? Like your church was growing, things were just humming along, life was happening, and then all of a sudden this happens. What happened? So this pastor sitting down with this other pastor, Wayne Coldero, said, for the longest time, my process was I would take from Scripture, I would put Scripture into my heart, I would take it from my heart, and I would give it to my people. 
I would take from Scripture, I'd put it in my heart, I'd take it from my heart and I'd give it to the people. This time and time again. He goes, but eventually I found myself simply taking from Scripture and giving it to people. Taking from Scripture and giving it to people. Without letting that Scripture come into my heart and change me from the inside out. Friends, there's a danger there, don't you see? That if you don't let this stuff penetrate you from the inside out, you're going to do a lot of outward good actions for a while. But at some point, it will break down. At some point, your approach, your gimmicks, your traditions, your best approaches are going to break down. We've got to start, we've got to be aware of what's happening on the inside. So therefore, if we take all that and put it now into play again with this passage, in many ways, Jesus could be saying this, flourishing is the one who does not live out of mixed motives, but instead has solidarity in heart, head, and hands for God and what God wants. That in the day, it's going to take a flourishing, if you want that flourishing, it's going to take a solidarity that you are working from the inside out. And that means that there's no duplicity in your heart. I'm not talking about perfection, which we'll get to, because think about this. Jesus isn't talking to a whole bunch of amazing Christians there. If anything, he's talking to a mixed bag of Jews, God-fearers, and pagans. And he gives this message to all of them there. Blessed are you if you are not duplicitous, if you'll if you'll not swear one thing, but then do another thing, if you actually follow through, if the 1 p.m. you and the 1 a.m. you line up, like the 1 p.m. you is the one that makes all the right decisions, says all the right words, you read your Bible, you put it on Facebook, you talk about it with your friends, but yet the 1 a.m. you is still trying to hold on to some shred of power that I got this, I don't have to be open about this, I can handle this in the shadows. That catches up. And Jesus is saying, regardless if you're saying that you're bowing knee to Yahweh or not, if you really want to see God, it's going to take a purity in heart. And I don't mean like be a perfect Christian. I mean like you have solidarity. Listen, here's the deal. You could be pure at heart and still mess up a lot as long as you're willing to own that you're messing up a lot and not try to skirt around it, but to take responsibility for it and let there be consequences because there are blessing and cursing. And the cursing doesn't mean that you're out. The cursing just means like there's consequences. So we have to deal with those consequences. If not, you become rotted, living from the outside in. Now let's take this to the other side, for they will see God. And this is a longer passage. We're just going to try to break it up, though, in different chunks and take it in that way. It's in Matthew 15. You can turn there if you want because we're just going to put a few things on the screen for you to read. It's in Matthew 15, and it's just starting at verse 1. Now, here's, here's what's happening. Jesus is going to the Sea of Galilee, which would be northeast modern-day Palestine, Israel. And he's up there, and he's teaching. He's got a big following around him. And he even has some Pharisees and scribes um, who were the religious elite and leaders and Sadducees come up to him from Jerusalem. They're hearing about all these things Jesus is doing, healing people, like 
talking about the laws of God in ways that seem more open to people than just Jewish people, like it's kind of weirding them out. And so they make the long trek to basically confront Jesus. And when they get to him, it says, why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. They're making a long trek, days and days. Like, have you ever had something to say to somebody else? And you're like, I got to get this off my chest. Like, I've got to tell this person something. And so, like, you build it up and you build it up and you build it up. And then when you finally get there, like, usually you're going to say things like, why did you make fun of my mother? Or why did you curse me? Or why did you take my job from me? Or why did you whatever? They show up and they say something like this. Why do your disciples not wash their hands when they eat? Like, that's it. Like, why are they not washing their hands? That's what they have to say. Their world has dwindled down simply to this right here. And so then, of course, Jesus has an answer for them. He goes, listen, if you read down just a few, what you would have gained from me is given to God. Let me start over here because I want to read something before it. He goes, he answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not to honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Here's what Jesus is saying. You're so caught up with these little traditions that you have, that you've made into these religious practices at the end of the day that defines if you really know God or not, but you still break commandments in the interior of your being. Like, you don't really honor your father and mother, you discard them. So what are you trying to tell me something about when you don't even live it out yourself? And he says, you're a hypocrite. And then he goes to a passage here in Isaiah that says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. These religious elite were more caught up on the outside and not the inside, and it drives Jesus insane. He can't take it. So much so he calls them hypocrites, which would be the Greek term for actor. You're, you're wearing masks. You're wearing paint. You're just acting this thing out. It's a difference between being religious or being spiritual. You're super religious, but the interior of your being is not truly in touch with me. The spirit of you spiritually is not connected with your heavenly Father. Don't you see how lost you are becoming? And he's very upset with this. And then the disciples, after they hear Jesus say this in verse 10, it says, the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Like, Jesus, you just ticked off a bunch of really important people. Like, do you know that you did that? Like, we're going to have, you know, Hades to pay for this kind of thing, right? It's not going to bode well for us. And Jesus just, again, gets set off. Like, Jesus doesn't get set off too many times. When he does, it's always, always towards those who are living a religious life and not a spiritual life. It's those who are living from the outside in and not the inside out. So then, Jesus goes on to say to them, every plant 
that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Oh my gosh. Let them alone, what? They are blind guides. Do you see the connection? Pure in heart, see God. Literally, God was in front of the Pharisees and they couldn't see him. Think about that. Think about there's a way you can become so inundated and blinded by your own religious practices, by your own doctrines of what you think is really important, that you can miss God right in front of you. This is the sad, tragic tale of the church in its history. We time and time again miss out on God at work because we think this person hasn't lined up in every way doctrinally the way that we believe they should. And it's crippling the church today because in turn it's just marginalizing who's in and who's out. That's what the Pharisees wanted to do. These people are in and these people are out. And they wanted to be the arbiters of what real doctrine and real truth was to look like. But that's not the church's responsibility. No matter how many times someone tries to tell you that, no matter how many times they use the argument of tradition and the shoulders we stand on, those traditions were meant to look back and honor others, not to keep others out. But so many times we go towards keeping people out. And this is nothing less than living a pharisaical life. Now, I want to say something real quick. I'm actually a Pharisee sympathizer. I think they get too bad of a rap too many times. Thank you, Josh. So a lot of people are going to be shocked that when you get into God's presence one day, there's going to be a lot of Pharisees there. There they are. Because these Pharisees were living a life for God the best they knew how. They were Yahwehist. They were trying to follow Yahweh. You'll be shocked who's in heaven. And yet, that still doesn't qualify or give permission to live like a Pharisee. Because those people who live in those ways will have the most tears to wipe away in heaven. Because they'll realize something, they missed out literally on God. That because somebody didn't have the same religion, the same thought, the same practices as you, you missed out on a chance to experience God. Because a person didn't have the right doctrines that, that kind of match up your whole like process and equation, you're going to miss God. And here's the thing, you can go ahead and miss God all you want throughout life. It's just going to be more sadness for you at the end of the day. But here's my question, aren't you tired of missing out on God? Like, don't you want to be able to see him involved in your life? Like, don't you want to be able to see that maybe God's bigger than your controlling world that you try to keep things in place? Maybe God, at the end of the day, gets the last word. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to, like, balk in your beliefs. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is, is that you need to, like, lighten up. Because God is bigger than you and your understanding of who he is, which is theology. If we just could give space for people to work out their faith in fear and trembling, I think you'd be shocked who'd be showing up in this place. I think the church at large would be shocked who would want to come hang out. But it's going to take you laying off the gas pedal of right doctrine and right approach. Quit living from the outside in, give some space to humanity and go, I just want to focus on my insides and let it translate to something on the outside. Because the best apologetic to your life is you living holy, holistically. 
people time and time again. This is the, when I lived overseas and was working as a missionary years ago, and I would talk to somebody from another religion, another faith, the thing that made them question Christianity time and again is, you say you're for peace, but then you go for war. You say you're for love, but then you gossip and you have spite. I don't get it. Now, what they could be asking for is a perfect person, but there's no such thing as that. But what we could do is simply own up to the fact of like, yeah, I got that one wrong, didn't I? Yeah, I don't do that one right, do I? Yeah, I'm a really imperfect person, aren't I? Can we be in a relationship and can we talk about this? Because at the end of the day, I'm searching to be in contact and union with my God in such a way that I get changed from the inside out. Is that what you want as well? There's an apologetic for you. There's a way for people to say, I want that. And not simply, well, do you understand the five points of Calvinism? Or do you have a Wesleyan quadrilateral view of how you're supposed to approach Scripture? Oh my God, really? Like that's it? Like that's what it comes down to for us? Those things aren't wrong. I buy into those things. But those things aren't the litmus test to someone getting in touch with God. Now here's what's interesting. Jesus, in this next passage, is going to start walking this out. And here's what I want you to keep in mind about Scripture. Scripture is not like, when we talk about um, the life of Jesus here in the Gospels, and that this is a sense of like, almost like a biography of him, it's not like a dear diary. Dear diary, today I cast out five demons, and then I walked with my disciples 50 miles, and then diary, we met this really crazy woman, and I had to get her like away from these people that wanted to throw rocks at her. All right, love you, hugs and kisses. Like that's not how it works. So the point of these gospel accounts is very intentional because the ancient writers didn't write everything down exactly. They wrote down what was happening but then connected the dots to other stories because they want to get across a point to you. And so what's interesting is after this interaction Jesus has, it then says, Read verse 21, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Stop. This is insane. And you wouldn't think so just by reading it. Tyre and Sidon was the exact, the exact opposite of what a Jewish person's life was meant to be about. Like, the first son of Canaan, which the Canaanites were those who inhabited the promised land. And they were always the ones that God's people were warring against. The Canaanites were the most pagan, irreligious, evil people that you could ever imagine if you were a Jewish person. If you ever were told to stay away from one person, it was a person from Sidon, no questions asked. Remember we talked about last week how that Jewish people would call um, the Samaritans dogs? right? They would rather hang out with Samaritans than Sidons. That's just how crazy it was. And so Jesus is like, hey, I want to get some rest, and, some rest and respite. Where should I go? Hmm, I know. Let me go to Tyre and Sidon because no one's going to bother me there. I'm so tired of these religious hypocrites and these elitists. I'm going to go there and hide out. I'm going to withdraw. And so he goes there and it says, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, here's the thing. I don't know if you could be mildly oppressed by a demon. Maybe so. 
but it says that she's severely oppressed by a demon. So we have something really serious here. And just so you know, at that time in history, any problem you had, right, that you couldn't explain happening in your body, like even seizures, those who dealt with seizures were considered demon, demonically oppressed, all right? So that's just a regular thing in the ancient Near East. You would assume if someone had something going on mentally, physically, it was a demon, which we'll see in a minute, this girl is healed. So it's not a demon. Like, it's not like the demon's like, oh, thank you, Jesus, for healing me. We're now good now in this girl's body. Like, demons were cast out, but like bodily problems were healed. But here's what's interesting. She cries out to him, O Lord, son of David. Now, this is the most pagan as pagan can be, and yet she's taken what broken understanding of Jewish context she has and applies it to Jesus. She knows that a Messiah is talked about in Jewish culture. She's heard them talk about it. That she recognizes Jesus and she goes, this, this Lord, which is, which is a respectful term, have mercy on me, son of David. You talk about somebody, like it'd be like somebody walking in this morning that is like the most evil person you can think of and then trying to communicate with you in ways of like in broken Christianese. Like you would just be like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think you really get it. Like, I don't really think you love Jesus that much, but like, you're talking about it in that way. Like, there's just no context that we really have for that today because we don't look around and go, well, those people are evil and I don't want those people around. But here, for a Jewish person, you didn't want people from siding around. And so, she comes to Jesus in her broken religious talk and says, son of David, have mercy on me. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. This is embarrassing. We don't need to have this woman around. This is going to, if you thought the Pharisees were angry before, wait till they hear about this, Jesus. Like get her out of here. So Jesus though, gets, this is really interesting. He doesn't respond the way you would think at first. It says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So immediately he's saying, I was only sent for, assumingly, those who were of Israel, the lost sheep there. If you have 99 and one leaves, you go get the one. So why is Jesus saying this here? Let's read on. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, listen to this, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Oh my gosh. Like that, you, Jesus, you're thinking like, child, welcome, I'm so glad you're here. Like, you really belong here. I love you so much. And he's like, why should I take from them and give it to you? Like, these are children. You're not my child. This is like, you're a dog. Why should I give it to you? That's his response. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Now, what Jesus is doing here is actually repeating phrases that have been said to people who were pagans and not Jews. Jesus isn't telling her this is her indictment. He's repeating to her what others have always said, that the Messiah is sent only for the house of Israel, that whatever the Messiah brings is only for the children of Israel and for no one else. It's almost, almost like Jesus is saying, hey, this is what's being said out here. What do you think about that? This is how people have niched you and they've labeled you. What do you think about that? It's pretty brilliant. And then she comes back and she says, yes, and Lord, even dogs get the crumbs from the table. And look what Jesus says next. Oh, woman, great is your faith. This is said only two times by Jesus. 
and never once to a disciple or to the religious elite, always to those who were super pagan and super outside looking in. Great is your faith. He says it to a centurion, and he says it to a woman from Sidon. If you want to impress Jesus, like, it's not through your religious actions, it's through your heartfelt desires. The centurion comes to Jesus and goes, I got to have you. I don't even know if I get it all verbally right religiously, but I got to have you. Please, from the core of me. There's a story, you know, in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the last one, the last battle, that has been debated for years of what Lewis wrote there. And the story is that you had those who followed Aslan and those who followed, followed the god Tash. And as there were two, there was like two portals to go into if you go into these little huts. And so everybody that was wanting to get to Aslan's country and hike up to like heavenly Narnia, they all went through the house to the left. And then in the other door, there was this raging demonic God waiting to eat anyone who comes through there. And so they get into Aslan's country, and all of a sudden they look around, and they find some dude from Tash sitting down under a tree reading, reading the book of Aslan. And they're like, how'd you get here? And he's like, everything in me just wanted to always serve the one true God. And so I just went through the door that seemed right, and here I am. What do you do with that? Like, what do you do with that? That's not in our doctrines. Now, at the end of the day, Lewis is not the true arbiter of all doctrine, but he's trying to get across a point. You may be shocked who God gives access to and who he doesn't. You may be shocked who sees him and who doesn't. That's what makes the 12-step recovery movement so amazing. It is filled with people who tried their best to live up from the outside in with religious practices and failed, and they were crushed. Those stories are a dime a dozen. And they come into these recovery rooms seeking for a different life because everything out there says they don't belong. They've left their God of the youth, they left everything possible, and it's just driven them to want to lose their mind and lose their life through whatever addiction comes their way. And then they come in there, and they're given space to get to know God again. And evangelicals have lost their minds over the years on this. You can't define God on your own terms, a God of your understanding. You can't leave that to the person. You've got to have the right doctrine. You know what happens in those recovery rooms time and again? People come back to Jesus. That's a dime a dozen as well. Because they're given space to work out all these experiences in their life and go, maybe, maybe, maybe the problem wasn't the God I talked about. Maybe the problem was the God I brought home with me. Maybe it was the God that was enforced on me. Maybe I couldn't live up to all these religious examples and, and plateaus in life. And they're now given space to work out their faith. That's why they call it a spiritual movement and not just an abstinence movement. Those who were so religious on the outside, but so hollow on the inside, could never see God. And they go in there, and they start finding God again on the inside, and want to live it out on the outside. I'm going to show you here a, um, just a, a visual. It was written it was by a guy named Paul Hebert. Paul was the leading missiologist for years, especially in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. All of his work were things that missiologists who wanted to go into different countries, especially countries like uh, the Middle East, East Asia, where there was no context for Christianity. 
And he created this understanding. He goes, Westerners don't really understand the difference here between what we call a bounded set and then a centered set. You see, a bounded set in the West is what dominates our churches. It says, we're going to draw a circle around Jesus, and then we're going to decide who's in and who's out by the way they live their life out. And so then we kind of create these barriers. And he goes, listen, that's fine. That can work for a while for you. But at the end of the day, it's going to break down. Because what he goes on to say is, to live a bounded set life is to live a static life, that it's all about boundaries. And Christians are those people who affirm right beliefs and right behaviors, and then they also decide who don't. And our churches so many times are built around this kind of bounded set. It's very static. But then he goes, but how the rest of the world has operated, the most success we've seen in people coming to know Jesus is through a centered set. And you'll notice in a centered set, there are those who are really close and moving closer to the well, closer to Jesus. Then there are those who are really close to Jesus and moving away. You have those who are far away and moving simply just horizontally. And then you have those who are far away and they're moving up to God. But here's the point. That actually has like some movement to it. It has some power to it. It's not static. And that this right here is the model Jesus is trying to get across. Like, you don't know the heart of another person. Only I do, because only I can wield the heart of a person. So why don't you give space to that person's heart to get closer to me? Because you may be shocked how much they know me. That we want to be a place at the end of the day, and listen, you've heard me slip this in some, but during the elders' retreat, we talked about this, that moving forward, what kind of church do we want to be at Christ City? And it was simply just two sentences. We want to be a place for people to belong and a place for people to know God. Like, what if Christ City was a place for people to belong and a place for people to know God? Like, what if they could belong before they believe? And what if it wasn't up to us to make them believe? It was just up to us to provide a space for them to belong. I wonder how powerful that would be in our community. That we wouldn't just say it, but practice it. That we practice it in our homes. We practice it in our work, in our relationships. That we learn to give our hearts first to people, what's really happening on the inside, and not just our hands and our religious practices. That we sought for spirituality and not just religion. That people could move towards the well of Jesus without us blocking the way, without us judging them. Well, you see, you got these sins in your life still, so you must not know God. Really? Because I got a pagan woman here in the Bible that Jesus says great is her faith. So here's the deal. I'm going to side with Jesus. He seems to have a lot of room for people who don't get it down perfect when it comes to calling him the Messiah and the way that you really should understand it. No, woman, you don't understand really what Messiah means. Let me teach you for five hours what the Messiah really is meant to bring to this world. And if you can sign this document and say yes, then that means you really can get a healing from me. It's not what he does. This woman sees God, the Pharisees don't. This woman gets heaven on earth here and now, the Pharisees don't. And the Pharisees still get to God one day, more than likely. But how sad is it that you just missed out on God constantly because we couldn't make room for people to come to him? 
Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those whose hearts truly go after him and let it flow out into their hands. And you know what? Blessed are those who give room for others to do the same. That's not what Jesus said. I'll just add that one in there. What a blessing it would be for those around us in our city to say, you could belong here, and you know what? When the time is right, you can get to know God. Let's pray. Jesus, you give us the most insane, hard things to think through. It's like you don't, you just can't make it easy. Like here's exactly how it has to be every time and just kind of put the coin in the machine, pull the lever, and then we're good. That's not how it works. You seem to create a lot of space for people who don't get it down right the first time, the second time, the third time, the tenth time. You seem just to make room for people constantly. God, that we would be a church that makes room for people to belong and then believe. A place to know you, a place to belong, and a place to know you. So help us, we pray, please, this morning. As we come to the table, may we bring the things that have kept us from seeing you, the duplicity in our hearts when we say one thing but live another way, when we have our religious practices down but not truly the interior of our lives in place, when we give ourselves wholly to you to do whatever it is you want with us. God, you're taking this church somewhere, and it's pretty beautiful and pretty amazing. May we just be surrendered to that process and quit grasping for the power we think that we have to have of how it all has to look and simply say, here I am, Lord, use me, O son of David, Lord, please bring healing in my life. May we be like the woman inside. We pray, please. Amen.